In a world where uncertainty reigns supreme, where shadows of chaos dance at every turn, one truth emerges unyielding. Preparation is not a luxury, but a lifeline. Behold the Wellness Company, a beacon of readiness amidst the tempestuous seas of fate. Envision a sanctuary of tranquility, where the tumult of unforeseen medical crises finds no purchase. The Wellness Company's Medical Emergency Kit stands as a bastion of assurance, a fortress of resilience against the unseen foes of health. Within its sacred confines lie the tools of salvation. Ivermectin, to ward off the insidious whispers of disease. Emergency antibiotics, to quell the raging storms of infection. Antivirals, to vanquish the relentless tides of contagion and more. The Wellness Company Medical Emergency Kit is not merely a collection of supplies. It is the embodiment of preparedness itself. Crafted by the hands of esteemed healers led by luminaries such as Dr. Peter McCullough, Dr. James Thorpe, Dr. Harvey Risch, and Dr. Drew Pinsky, this kit stands as the pinnacle of safety, the zenith of prevention. These truth-seeking doctors have forged a testament to vigilance, a testament to the unwavering pursuit of well-being. Embrace the certainty that comes from being armed against adversity. Embrace the Wellness Company, for in its embrace lies the promise of resilience, the promise of a brighter tomorrow amidst the chaos of today. Don't wait for the next crisis to strike. Visit twc.health forward slash strange planet and use promo code strange planet for an exclusive 10% discount. Prepare today and rest easy tomorrow. Have you ever wondered why we call French fries French fries? Or why something is the greatest thing since sliced bread? There are answers to those questions. Everything Everywhere Daily is a podcast for curious people who want to learn more about the world around them. Every day, you'll learn something new about things you never knew you didn't know. Subjects include history, science, geography, mathematics, and culture. If you're a curious person and want to learn more about the world you live in, just subscribe to Everything Everywhere Daily wherever you cast your pod. We all enjoy a little mystery. Every other week, One Strange Thing presents forgotten stories from America's newspaper archives. They all have something in common, a single element that can't quite be explained. Join us on One Strange Thing, and you'll hear about a man who was literally stricken with genius. A 21st century child who remembered piloting a World War II bomber a mysterious, unidentifiable blob in Texas. And then there was the lizard man stalking through small-town South Carolina. From cryptids and disappearances to modern-day miracles, one strange thing brings you stories that are very real and just a little otherworldly. Subscribe now, wherever you listen. Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett. No one died from radiation in Fukushima. So if no humans died who were in the reactor all around the town there, why do they think it's killed the whole ocean? I mean, that's ridiculous. It has not killed anything that anybody knows of. There were not fish washing up dead on the shore. No way. There was radiation released, and it, you know, radiation, the sun is radiation. That's what makes it habitable for life on Earth. C60 EVO delivers the miracle molecule 
ESS60. It's pure carbon 60. Why not love your body and share C60 Evo with those you love? ESS60 from C60 Evo is a mega antioxidant for increased strength, endurance, flexibility, and a deeper sleep. It's great for pets too. I take a tablespoon every day and so does the mighty Aphrodite. We're both sleeping better than we have in years. And during the day, we have such tremendous energy and vitality. We're both pain-free. In a landmark peer-reviewed animal study in Paris, France, rats fed ESS60 lived twice their normal lifespan. Go to c60evo.com slash Richard hyphen or click on the C60Evo link in the episode notes. Use the code EVRS at checkout and save 10%. ESS60 from C60Evo. Order your miracle in a bottle today. Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett. Pursuing the truth wherever it leads. Exposing evil and corruption and the secret machinations of powerful elites. Revealing the high strangeness beneath the surface of our supposed reality. Coming to you from his studio beneath the stairs. Here's Richard Serrett. My guest is going to call out the dire environmental warnings coming from radical environmentalists. Not even. They're not even the radical ones anymore. The panic and hysteria and fear-mongering has gone mainstream. Now even the leader of uh, the so-called conservative party in Canada is on board. Aaron O'Toole. Lindsey Graham, Republican senator, all on board pushing the doomsday scenario of man-made climate change, all based, my guest says, and I happen to concur, on fraudulent science and scare tactics. So, Dr. Patrick Moore was a founding member of Greenpeace and served for nine years as president of Greenpeace Canada and seven years as a director of Greenpeace International. He parted ways after the organization became too radical. In recent years... Patrick has been focused on the promotion of sustainability and consensus building among competing concerns. He's still an environmentalist. He's simply a sane and reasonable environmentalist. He was a member of British Columbia's government-appointed roundtable on the environment and economy from 1990 to 1994. In 1990, he founded and chaired the BC Carbon Project, a group that worked to develop a common understanding of climate change. He's the author of several books, including Confessions of a Greenpeace Dropout and his most recent one, brand new, Fake Invisible Catastrophes and Threats of Doom. Dr. Patrick Moore, how are you? I'm very well, Richard. So would it be fair to say that really you didn't leave Greenpeace? They sort of left you. Yes, I think it is fair to say because we were doing really good work stopping nuclear weapons and stopping the slaughter of 30,000 whales every year, protecting baby seals that were being slaughtered by the hundreds of thousands while they were still suckling on their mother, and then toxic chemicals going into the environment, into the rivers and making them dead, uh, in Europe especially. Uh, So we did a lot of really good work, and that's just not the half of it. I led the campaign to stop the final capture of an orca whale, or killer whales as they're called here in British Columbia, after 65 of them had been taken from the ocean, like about 25% of all our whales had been taken into captivity where they were at that time dying young. 
They've since thankfully learned to breed them in captivity, but I still think that they're too big a whale to be put into a swimming pool. And so, yes, we did great work, but as time went on, beginning with a humanitarian orientation to save civilization from all-out nuclear war, Greenpeace kind of lost the peace part and just focused on the green and decided that humans were the enemies of the earth. And that was just way too much like original sin for me. We are one of the species that has evolved over the last three billion plus years on this planet, along with all of the other species. We are as much a part of all of life as any other species is. And we are not evil. We have, we, we have more, way more goodness in us than evil in us. There's probably evil, a little bit of evil in badness in every species, but I just couldn't buy that sort of argument. So I left in 1986, also because I was the only one with any science education, and the rest of them decided we should have a campaign to ban chlorine worldwide. And so that was the sharp end of the stick for me. The philosophical aspect of humans being the enemies of nature was important, of course, but when they decided to ban chlorine, which is the most important element for public health and medicine, I had to leave. And so I went on, nicknamed myself the sensible environmentalist, basing my policies on science and logic rather than misinformation, sensationalism, and fear tactics. And uh, then they tried to, or someone did, I don't know if it was Greenpeace, they tried to expunge you from history, which is, of course, right out of 1984. That's the role of the central character, right? Winston Smith is supposed to rewrite the history books. They tried to do that with you, and and so if you were to go on a Wikipedia, you were no longer listed as the founder or co-founder. Yeah, it was a bit of a joint effort on the part of all those woke crowd, but including my, my Greenpeace organization, None of the people in it that I even knew anymore, uh, well, I never knew them to begin with, is what I mean. They, they came along later. It was basically a hijacking by the political left of people who were smarter about politics than they were about the environment. Like, we were sort of more eco-freaks uh, than we were politicos. And pretty soon I noticed that a lot of the people joining Greenpeace were wearing red, red berets and army fatigues, you know, in the, in the time of, of, of that era. And I just had to go. And I'm really glad I did because they've turned into basically a racket spreading junk science. And they're making a lot of money still doing it. And the whole focus is on fundraising. And I may not get a Nobel Prize for it. But the reason I wrote my book is because I have discovered the universal theory of scare stories. And this theory is very clear that all the scare stories are based on things that are either invisible like carbon dioxide, radiation, whatever the bad thing is in GMOs, which actually doesn't even exist. CO2 and radiation are real, but they're invisible. And, well, even the COVID, but I know you're talking about that later, but it's invisible and they're making a scare story out of it. Or not only are they not, if they're not invisible, they're so remote, like polar bears, coral reefs, and the so-called fake Pacific garbage patch, which is so far out in the ocean that no one could see it for themselves if it was there. So either invisible or remote or both, that means that the activists, the media, the politicians promising to save your grandchildren from a certain death, and the scientists on serial government grants claiming the science is settled on one hand, and on the other hand begging for more money every year to continue to study apparently what we already know. And so it's a big hoax. 
It's a big convergence of interests among these various elites, all of whom are working together. Someone like Sir David Attenborough, who I believe recently yeah. celebrated his 90th birthday, and of course he's a, a champion of Mother Earth and uh, has a, a tremendous amount of influence. What's in it for him? Is he just misguided, or why is he on board with these, as you say, scare tactics and fraudulent science? Well, it's interesting, because David Bellamy, who was similar to him uh, on BBC doing nature things, he quit when they insisted that he played along with the game of, of catastrophic climate change. But David Attenborough decided to stay on. And recently, when asked why he peddles this stuff, he said, well, I just read what the writers put down for me. That just amazes me. I mean, he's supposed to be the smart guy. But that's what he said. And the truth is, I have him in my book on three separate, very important lies about the environment. And one of them is he said that the walruses on the coast of Alaska were leaping to their death from cliffs, committing suicide because there wasn't enough ice for them anymore. When in fact, it was a pack of 20 to 30 polar bears coming from behind them. They had climbed in their rookery. They had climbed up to a steep part where there's a cliff there. And so rather than be eaten alive by polar bears, they leapt to their death. And then the polar bears went around and ate them after, so they didn't have to kill them because it's pretty hard to kill a full-sized sea lion. And a right, walrus, right. sorry. This kind of thing is, is what he's doing now. And of course, the northern coast of Russia is a very remote place, but there is a little community there. And this was actually all documented. And Susan Crockford on her website, Polar Bear Science, has also documented the whole thing, and so have I in my book. It's the last chapter in my book, because it's kind of the icing on the cake in terms of how much falsehood is being spread about environmental stories to scare people into thinking that the world is coming to an end. So this was actually featured, I'm not sure which uh, David Attenborough special it was in, but they showed these walruses leaping off of this cliff, and we hear David Attenborough's voice saying that this is because of climate change. There's not enough ice, and so, what, presumably, they they climbed up to the top and said, oh, I can't go on, there's not enough ice, and then they jumped off. Meanwhile, we now know the backstory is that in behind them off camera was a pack of polar bears that were coming uh, upon them, and then rather than be eaten by polar bears, they leapt to their death. Correct. And I mean, he that's... sticks to his story, and he just told it to the people in Davos. Half of them were apparently weeping in their seats because he gives such an emotional speech about this terrible situation. He says that the ice is the walrus's home. It is the polar bear's home. That's another story. But he said the ice is the walrus's home. No, they just haul out on it to rest and to give birth, or on the land, which is where they were in this case. They were on the land. You see, walruses are a coastal species. Their food is only in like 100 to 300 feet of water. That's what their tusks are for, is to dig clams down on the bottom. Like they can't feed in 6,000 feet of water. So if there's no ice near the shore, which happens very often in, in the summer, they have to haul out on the shore. And he said that they hauled out on the shore out of desperation because there wasn't enough ice. But the weird thing is, is that that place on the shore in Russia is designated as a walrus habitat, like it's officially designated. So they must have been hauling out there for a while. It's not in desperation. That's where they go. 
when they want to come out of the water. That kind of, let's say, journalistic malfeasance would ruin, or once upon a time it would, I guess not anymore, the rules have changed. But that kind of stuff, remember Dan Rather and that whole thing on uh, George Bush, I mean, that really devastated his career. How is it that he's able to get away with that? I don't know, Richard. I'm just pointing it out. So, And hopefully yeah. if more people buy my book and this becomes more general knowledge, he won't get away with it. Let me tell you one other absolutely a despicable thing that he is saying. He is saying that seabirds, albatross in particular, that the parents are feeding plastic bags to their chicks, mistaking it for food. Now, he holds up a plastic bag on an albatross colony. He doesn't show any albatross feeding a plastic bag to its chick. They don't feed plastic bags to their chick, but they do feed hard bits of plastic that are floating in the sea in the same that they would feed small bits of pumice, wood chips, and, uh, and nuts, anything hard. You see, birds don't have teeth, so they can't chew their food. They have to swallow it whole. And they have a gizzard, which is a second right. stomach, where they put, like, land birds eat pebbles. And the parents feed the, when the birds are in a nest, a seagull or what, an eagle or a crow, the parents feed the chicks with pebbles so that they can grind the food in their gizzard. So they're not mistaking it for food. They're giving it to them as a digestive aid. Now, David Attenborough wrote The Secret Life of Birds and did a 10-part series on BBC on birds. He knows that birds have gizzards. He knows they need to take in small, hard objects to grind the food in the bird's gizzard. And he lies about it to say that the parents are feeding their chicks plastic bags, mistaking it for food. Birds aren't that stupid. They know the difference between food and a plastic bag. And they don't so, but those, the plastic bag would be of no use to the chick. What right. is of but those, use to those, the chick is pieces of hard plastic. Okay. Now, those bits of hard plastic in the bird's gizzard, will that cause them harm? Of course not. They wouldn't feed them ones that do. You know, for example, a squid's beak is quite sharp. Right. And albatross feed squid to their chicks, and when the, after the, the chicks have digested the squid, they, they retain the beak in their gizzard. And these objects wear out after a time. They have to be constantly eaten. And adult birds, all adult birds, have to continually ingest hard bits of something. And stones are used on land, but there's no pebbles in the ocean. So out there, it's actually quite a job to get enough material, and often there isn't enough pumice, which is floating lava from volca undersea volcanoes. That's what they prefer. But it isn't always there, because there hasn't always been an eruption. So they have to resort to using pieces of, 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 of wood, you know, floating wood, or nuts that have fallen off a banyan tree or whatever into the ocean and have drifted out, or these days, bits of plastic, and this is coming in very handy for them. In other words, part of the plastic that ends up in the ocean is doing a very useful job for the biology of seabirds. And it's, yeah, it's plastic is, gets an awful rap. We're going to spend some time and talk about plastic. We'll talk about this Good. huge, invisible island of plastic I've heard that is, I don't know, twice the size of the state of Texas or whatever. And I have to admit, you know, this one always sort of concerned me because I... 
I don't know. It sounded almost like an intractable problem uh, that it the, the plastic had deteriorated to the level that you couldn't just scoop it up. It's so small now. And I would kind of uh, not agonize, but I had a little bit of anxiety about that. But when we come back, you're going to disabuse us of this notion that this even exists, this plastic island. Dr. Patrick Moore, founding member of Greenpeace, former president of Greenpeace Canada, now the sensible environmentalist, and his brand new book, Fake Invisible Catastrophes and Threats of Doom. Have you ever wondered what it's like to be buried in an avalanche? Weird foreign feeling of despair. Or how it feels to crash a skydive? I remember hearing a thud, feeling my body hit the ground. Or how you would react if you were being attacked by an alligator? At the end of my leg is this huge alligator head on my leg. These are the stories you'll hear on the podcast called What Was That Like? True stories told by the actual person who went through it. You'll hear from a victim of an attack. Dragging me into the bathroom and saying, I'm going to kill you, now you're going to die. You'll hear from a man who discovered a baby. How could this be? How could there be a baby on the ground? And you'll hear actual 911 calls. Plinky County 911, there's a man at my back door. He's trying to get in. What Was That Like is a podcast about real people in unreal situations. Search for What Was That Like on any podcast app or at What Was That Like. I'm Andrew Gold, a fallen BBC journalist interviewing the heretics and rebels brave enough to speak out against mainstream narratives. Here's Coleman Hughes, John Ronson, and the Trigonometry podcast guys bringing controversy to the fore. How do you feel if a person of a different race moved in next door? I spent a while with a politically correct faction of the Ku Klux Klan. The system punishes people for wrong think. It's heartbreaking. Here's My Unorthodox Life Netflix star Julia Hart on getting out of a Hasidic Jewish cult. Why can't I be okay with being silent and subservient? Everyone else is. And biologist Richard Dawkins on trans activism. It's perfectly legitimate to say, I'm a man, but I feel feminine. But to then say, therefore I am a woman, is just a betrayal of language. Now it's your turn rebel against the mainstream and find a home in this sensible alternative space by subscribing to Heretics Podcast. Overwhelmed by investing? If you're anything like us, the hardest part is getting started. That's why we created the Investing for Beginners podcast. Our goal is to help simplify money so it can work for you. We invite guests to demystify investing. At least try to be setting aside like the minimum 10% into the 401k. I'll teach you the basics of the market. Yeah, I think compound interest should be at the start of any discussion about investing. And We've had investment professionals who teach in a simple way. A valuation-driven bear market. You know, we, we haven't really seen yet, and I think everyone's thinking about it, but we haven't really seen yet. Our Q&A episodes feature questions from listeners just like you. So what do you think about the situation with ETBI, which is Activision? I'm Dave Ahern. And I'm Andrew Sather. And we hope you join us on the Investing for Beginners podcast. On the Investing for Beginners podcast. Do you want to know what it's like to hang out with MS-13 in El Salvador? How the Russian mafia fought battles all over Brooklyn in the 1990s? Or what about that time I got lost in the Burmese jungle hunting the world's biggest meth lab? Or why the Japanese Yakuza have all those crazy dragon tattoos? I'm Sean Williams. And I'm Danny Golds. And we're the host of the Underworld Podcast. 
We're journalists that have traveled all over, reporting on dangerous people and places. And every week, we'll be bringing you a new story about organized crime from all over the world. We know this stuff because we've been there, we've seen it, and we've got the near misses and embarrassing tales to go with it. We'll mix in reporting with our own experiences in the field, and we'll throw in some bad jokes while we're at it. The Underworld Podcast explores the criminal underworlds that affect all of our lives, whether we know it or not. Available wherever you get your podcasts. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp. Is there something interfering with your happiness or is preventing you from achieving your goals? BetterHelp will assess your needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist. And you can start communicating in under 48 hours. It's not a crisis line. It's not self-help. It's professional counseling done securely online. There's a broad range of expertise available, which may not be locally available in many areas. The service is available for clients worldwide, and you can log into your account anytime and send a message to your counselor. You'll get timely and thoughtful responses, plus you can schedule weekly video or phone sessions, so you won't ever have to sit in an uncomfortable waiting room as with traditional therapy. Better help is committed to facilitating great therapeutic matches so they can make it easy and free to change counselors if needed. It's more affordable than traditional offline counseling and financial aid is available. BetterHelp wants you to start living a happier life today. Visit their website and read their testimonials that are posted daily. Visit betterhelp.com. That's help, H-E-L-P, betterhelp.com slash conspiracy. And join the over 1 million people who've taken charge of their mental health with the help of an experienced professional. In fact, so many people have been using BetterHelp, they're recruiting additional counselors in all 50 states. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, BetterHelp, and Conspiracy Unlimited. Listeners get 10% off their first month at BetterHelp.com Unlimited. The truth goes through three stages. First, it is ridiculed. Then, it is violently opposed. Finally, it is accepted as self-evident. Let me just read that again, what that means. Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett. Dr. Patrick Moore, back to some of these uh, dire warnings, fraudulent science, scare tactics. You were talking about plastic, so let's dive right in with this story about this enormous island, this great Pacific garbage patch, they call it, that's full of plastic twice the size of Texas. It sounds horrible, but you say it doesn't even exist. Well, that's correct, Richard. It does not actually exist at all. It isn't there. There is plastic floating in the ocean. It's dispersed very much so. It's not in huge patches. They only have made this up because no one can check it for themselves. It's part of the universal theory of scare campaigns. The sad thing is, I bought into this when it first came out because it made sense. I knew about the Pacific Gyre, which is a place that the currents focus on in the center of the Pacific Ocean, and it does catch stuff like the Japanese glass balls when they used to use them as net floats. They used to get stuck in there, and then they'd spit them out. It would spit them out every once in a while and come on the beaches on the West Coast, and people collected them. They went after a storm to be the first one there, if any came in. So I did know this sort of lore. But the truth of the matter is, if you go on the Internet after you have put in Great Pacific Garbage Patch in Pacific Ocean, what you get is all kinds of Photoshopped images 
that are not photographs of the Pacific. They are just people have drawn a picture of a big blob on the Pacific Ocean and point an arrow to it and say, this is the Pacific Garbage Patch. And that's in my book. I show two examples. And the other one they use is the aftermath of the Japanese tsunami, which killed nearly 20,000 people, also wiped off a huge number of towns and villages into the sea and left a massive patch of debris off the coast of Japan. But they show a picture and say it's the Pacific Garbage Patch, but you can see mountains in the background. That's the mountains of Japan. So they fake that. And actually, though, if you go to a German composite from a, a, a German government agency that does photographs from satellites, and they do a composite so that they have a picture that is cloudless, because there's always some cloud somewhere in the Pacific, but there's some, everywhere in the Pacific has some days when there's no clouds. So they take the cloudless parts and put them together from a year's worth of photographs, and there you have a cloudless Pacific. And in that, you can see the Hawaiian Islands quite clearly, and they're not twice the size of Texas. But there's absolutely no indication of any garbage patch. So when I, I'm challenged about this by members of the audience, they say a number of things. They say, one guy actually told me it was just the clear plastic, and that's why you can't see it from outer space. But that's ridiculous. The second thing is that it's just under the surface. Well, excuse me, but plastic usually either floats on the surface or sinks to the bottom. There's only a few different pieces of plastic that are going to find somewhere in the mid, you know, between the top and the bottom. Most of it either sinks or floats. So that's not real. Then they resort to its microplastic. Oh, you mean it's invisible, right? And that's what it comes down to. It's invisible. But I thought they said plastic never decomposed or degraded. Like, how could it be in microplastics if it never breaks down? The truth is plastic does break down in the sunshine, just like almost anything does. But when it's microplastic, it's totally harmless. I mean, we can eat sand, and it just goes out the other end of us. And then they say it's toxic. Now, that's the worst one of all, because why would we wrap all our food and our meats in plastic wrap and put all our food in plastic containers if it was toxic? The reason we use plastic to wrap our food is precisely because it is not toxic and protects our food from contamination. So on and right. on you go, and you find out in the end, because all the plastics pretty well are made from fossil fuels, some from natural gas like PVCs made with natural gas and salt, polyvinyl chloride and polyethylene can be made from natural gas, from oil. Some plastics are made from coal. And so really the war on plastic is just a proxy for the war on fossil fuels. That's, where that's the final underlying reason that they are trying to denigrate and make plastic into something that's like, they say dirty fossil fuels, they say toxic plastics. But there's no truth to it. But in the final so it's analysis, inert. there is it's no basically inert. garbage patch. It doesn't exist. Okay, so plastic is, is basically inert? Yes. But it is bloody unsightly, though, isn't it? I mean, you see plastic bottles, water bottles particularly, everywhere. You see them on the beach. You see them floating in the water. Okay, let's say they are inert. But, my gosh, they're so unsightly. And we, occasionally you see a duck with his bill wrapped up in one of those plastic, you know, that like a six-pack. You get those plastic tabs. He'll stick his beak through there. I mean, that stuff happens, right? How many times have you seen that? Probably the same video over and over, but <laughs> it does exactly. happen. Exactly. And that's the thing. And there are certain shapes of plastic 
discarded fishnets is the main one. There should be, and there, there are campaigns now to get fishermen to stop throwing their damaged nets overboard, especially if they still have floats on them, because those do catch things. That's what they're meant for. It's not because it's plastic. It's because of the shape they are. The same with the six-pack plastic rings. It's because of their shape that they're a problem, not because they're plastic. They do right. break down eventually in the sea. But most of the plastic in the sea is actually no different than driftwood in the sea, and it's a place for species to lay their eggs on. It's a species attached to them, like pelagic barnacles. That's the main one. It attaches to plastic the same way it attaches to driftwood. And there's many people who understand that, even in the ecological side, that they understand that plastic and driftwood are basically the same in terms of their hat, except plastic comes in different forms, like bottles and cups, and those can form habitat for species, especially if they sink to the bottom. So, there, the, and, and then there's the fact that seabirds are, are depending to some extent for plastic on providing a digestive aid for themselves and their chicks all through their lives. Those are all beneficial uses of plastic that's in the sea. And, but your first point was the unsightly point. That's the difference between litter and plastic. Right. Sorry, litter and, pollution and poison. And... Pollution, yes. Right. We find litter unsightly. And uh, therefore, I agree that people should clean up the beaches. But, you know, I've lived on the west coast of Vancouver Island all my life, 73 years. And there was a period of time when plastic became prevalent in garbage that there was a lot of plastic on the beaches. There's way less now than there was before. People are much more conscious about it. If you go up to the north end of Vancouver Island, which is right in where everything comes from in the Pacific, after the Japanese tsunami, all kinds of stuff washed up on the west coast of Vancouver Island two, three years later. But the fact is today, there is way less plastic on the beaches, and teams of people are going out and picking up what there is, and helicopters are taking it out. And in the final analysis, the solution to all combustible waste that is not suitable for recycling, like our film, all the plastic film that covers our foods and stuff, you can't recycle that. It should be put into waste to energy. In Europe, in Western Europe in particular, very often as much as half or even more in Germany, half of their municipal waste that isn't suitable for anything else is used to make electricity in state-of-the-art plants. And it's like China's big into this now, and so are many other countries. North America is still putting 50% of its municipal waste into landfills, which are basically dumps where it's completely wasted and leaches out into waterways and stuff. That's got to end. But the problem is, is the green movement, so-called, is against burning things. They are actually against combustion. They're against burning fossil fuels, they're against burning wood, they're against burning waste, they're against burning anything. And that is ridiculous, because fire was the beginning of civilization, of human civilization, keeping the cave warm and cooking your food in there. Right. And suddenly right. now we have a, a, a worldwide movement that's against burning anything, like to make energy. I'm getting a lot of people wanting to talk about Fukushima. We just passed another anniversary. The idea that, uh, you know, people are saying these grave predictions about the Pacific Ocean is dead because of all the radiation pouring out of Fukushima, the nuclear plant in Japan. What do you say to people who, who talk about this radiation and how it's killing the ocean or the ocean is already dead? 
Oh, jeez, I don't know what to say to them. They should go to the ocean and take a look at it. It's so alive you wouldn't believe it. But the deal is, is there's been three nuclear accidents in 65 years. Three Mile Island, which harmed no one, period. Chernobyl, which was the only nuclear accident that caused death to civilians and workers, 56 of them to be exact, according to the World Health Organization. No one else died from that besides those 56 people. And that was a shame. But the thing is, Chernobyl was a reactor that the design was made in Russia behind the Iron Curtain. They did a shortcut using their plutonium weapons production reactors to make electricity. It was a bad design. It had the opportunity to blow up, and that one did. And there's still 10 of them running in Russia, but they've modified them so they won't do that. But Fukushima, no one died from radiation in Fukushima. So if no humans died who were in the reactor all around the town there, why do they think it's killed the whole ocean? I mean, that's ridiculous. It has not killed anything that anybody knows of. There were not fish washing up dead on the shore. No way. There was radiation released, and it, you know, radiation, the sun is radiation. That's what makes it habitable for life on Earth is the radiation from the sun. And the ultraviolet radiation in the sun's rays can give you cancer, which is why we put sunscreen on and don't take too much of it. And that's why people in tropical countries' skin turned brown, was in order to prevent so much UV radiation from penetrating under their skin. So, you know, radiation is a big subject. My book has a whole section on it explaining the effects of radiation on life. The truth is, many, many Ph.D. radiologists believe in a theory called hormesis, which is the theory that small amounts of radiation are actually beneficial because they challenge the body's cell repair mechanism in the same way that a vaccine causes the immune system to react and strengthen you, your resistance against that virus or bacteria in the same way your body can build defense to radiation and other damaging things that go into it. So the cell repair mechanism of living things, it has to be there because if it wasn't there, there wouldn't be any life. Your cells have to be able to repair any damage. And as soon as your cells are not able to repair the damage as fast as it is being caused by the external thing, then you die. I was reading recently, there's this new branch of psychology that's, that's emerged just to deal with, and they've even given it a name, and psychologists love to label things, but they're calling it eco-anxiety. So we have an entire generation that is growing up in schools. That's the primary source, you know, where this this fear is being propagated with young people. And so now we have an entire generation of young kids. They come home, they have nightmares, they have anxiety, they are depressed because of what they're being taught. They're being taught that, that the planet is doomed you know, we've got 10 more years left. How do we, I mean, how did we arrive at this? How can we allow our children to be abused in our own public schools at taxpayers' expense this way? Well, it's the great march through the institutions of socialism and basically communism and basically Marxism. And this is, you know, it's been, there's been a lot of media on this lately, on the alternative media, as you might call it these days, uh, going back in the history to Marcuse and and, and, and the others who have been promulgating these ideas against free markets, against democracy, etc., etc., and basically the, the, the dictatorship of the elites. 
and, and that we should all just shut up, and they should all just tell us exactly what to do. And this is coming out in the whole COVID issue, of course, because now I find myself having been vaccinated, and my status has not changed one iota. I now still have to wear a mask everywhere. I still can't go here and there. I still have to be quarantined for 14 days. When I, after I've had three negative tests for COVID, I still have to be quarantined. I still can't do this. I still can't do that. Right? This right. is what we've been played. We've been played. Yeah. We are right. being played. Yes. We've and, got to take one more final. Tell us when they can't tell us why it's different after you've been vaccinated. When they told us for a year that once you got vaccinated, you'd be okay. Uh, like, and, and, and they're, they're even canceling people for asking that question now. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's, very... that's the state we've got to. And it's the same with the environment. Uh, if you question the doomsday narrative, like people, I mean, AOC said it. She said the world is going to end in 12 years if we don't stop using fossil fuels. What kind of baby talk is it to say the world is going to come to an end? <laughs> I, uh, let's just dive in and talk about CO2 and uh, climate change and the idea that somehow CO2 is driving uh, ocean acidification and uh, that well, what what is the argument from their side that that CO two drives up ocean acidification, and then what is that going to do? Well, that's that's actually a total fabrication. At least with CO two causing warming, there is the fact that it's a greenhouse gas, a very minor one, in fact. But at least it is a greenhouse gas, and therefore it's plausible to suggest that it might cause warming. All else being equal. But there are so many factors involved in the atmospheric climate that some things, you know, other things could override the increase in CO2 as a greenhouse gas. Well, that's another story. But it it happened during the 20 years uh, from about 1990 to 2010 when there was really no significant rise in global temperature, even though CO2 emissions were still increasing exponentially worldwide with China at that point becoming ahead of the United States and now way ahead of it in CO2 emissions. So they had to have a fallback story. So they, 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 they ended up deciding on this ocean acidification narrative. Narrative being a word that I believe should be confined to works of fiction because it is not a science word. But you'll see it used all the time to describe their stories, i.e. fairy tales. And, and ocean acidification is no different. They're saying that if there's more CO2 in the atmosphere, it will dissolve into the oceans and make the oceans acidic. It's impossible to make the oceans acidic. They are so alkaline or basic, up above 8 in most cases, whereas 7 is neutral. It would be impossible to have enough CO2 in the atmosphere to make the oceans actually acidic. So when you say, no, that can't happen, they say, well, it makes it more acidic. No, no, sorry, what you mean is less alkaline. You don't mean more acidic, because it's not acidic, it's alkaline. And they use the word acid and acidic because it's got negative connotation, whereas alkaline and basic, people don't think anything about that. Uh, It doesn't have a negative connotation. And it's like Alka-Seltzer is basic, is alkaline. And, and actually, vinegar is quite acidic. Uh, and it, you can drink a lot of that without getting into trouble. But 
CO2 cannot make the oceans acidic. Most important fact is, not only is CO2 in the ocean the most important food for life in the ocean, in the same way it is in the atmosphere for plants, for plankton in the ocean, that's what they eat. They eat CO2. And that's what they make sugar with. That's the basis of life in the ocean, just like it is in the atmosphere. If there wasn't any CO2 in the ocean, the pH of the ocean would be 11.3, which is the same as Drano. In other words, the ocean could not support <laughs> life at all if there was no CO2 in it. It is the CO2 that brings the ocean down to a level of alkalinity or a level of basic, which is supportive of life, which is 8, pH 8, ranging from pH 7.8 to 8.4. And But if you look at an area like where I live, where there's a huge river coming into the ocean, the intertidal zone, a huge tide flats full of shellfish, mussels, and, and, and clams, and, and oysters, and ton of other things. The pH there, and the temperature there, and the, all the different factors there, the oxygen content, changes radically between tides every day, and those things are surviving there. So the idea that a little more CO2 in the ocean would cause some catastrophic change is absolutely ridiculous and preposterous, and I go into great detail in my book on that subject and the other subject that has to do with CO2, of course, which is climate change in the global atmosphere. Those are the two most complex subjects in my book, but I explain them in ways just like I have tonight about other subjects that anyone can understand who has a proficiency of English, say above grade 8 or 9, can understand what I'm saying. And I also have over 100 color plates which show people in graphics and in photographs and in graphs and illustrations, uh, gives them a, a, a better picture, because one picture or one uh, graph is worth a thousand words. And so the, the book really does give a person a very full grounding, not just in the climate issue, but in all the scare stories, the main ones at least, uh, that are making our children afraid uh, to grow up. And, and, and that, that is, I think, a crime against Humanity, it's evil. There are evil people in the world today who are spreading evil ideas, and we're in a time of good and evil, a biblical kind of time. Uh, and I'm not a particularly religious person, but I know the difference between good and evil, and we are seeing it right now. I agree. I hope one day there is a class action lawsuit against uh, education ministries or uh, everywhere that uh, this has to stop. Uh, let me just there's just a few minutes left and you are the sensible environmentalist. There are some things that are of concern. Uh, you know, we need to be good stewards of this planet. Give me a couple of things that concern you um, about the environment, what we should be doing it. Uh, about it, what, what uh, I don't know—is it overfishing? Is it um, indoor pollution? You know, a lot of the the the, the world survives by burning uh, cheap fuel inside their their homes in in developing nations, and they develop respiratory ailments. Uh, indoor pollution is a huge problem. But what are some of the, the the environmental threats you think we should be addressing? Well, it's interesting as you mentioned the fisheries. Uh, the wild catch of ocean fish has leveled right off for the last 25 years and is now being, uh, the increase in seafood is all coming from aquaculture now. And aquaculture, when I started a salmon farm in Winter Harbor when I left Greenpeace, then they came out against my salmon farm. I'm going, 
you guys are against farming fish. What on earth are you in favor of? <laughs> and so, so I, I farmed salmon there and for 10 years uh, and then went back into international environmental work again, which would be inevitable almost. And, and only this time with an emphasis on balancing the social, environmental, and economic priorities instead of just saying only the environment counts because there are all these people uh, and, and they have to be part of the equation. There's no doubt about that, unless you want mass death, which is not the most loveliest of prospects. Uh, so I, I, I believe that we have leveled off on our exploitation of the oceans at a somewhat of a sustainable level. I mean, interestingly about the word sustainable and renewable, fish are renewable, but if you overfish it, it's not sustainable. Iron ore is non-renewable, but there's enough of it for a million years. So it's sustainable, even though it's non-renewable. People don't often make those distinctions between those things. Right, and right. Then, and, then there's, and then there's the word green, which is completely impossible to define technically. It's just a whitewash word that people just use to defend their own point of view when it actually has no basis in technical or scientific description. None whatsoever. And you could say, well, what does it mean? Non-polluting or what does it mean? Renewable? What does it mean? Sustainable? Like clean <laughs> anti-capitalism. It means anti-capitalism. Yes. <laughs> That's exactly what it means, Richard. You've got that one right. So I believe that this issue of indoor air pollution in African huts is really important. They don't even have a chimney. They're burning dung and wood in there with huge fumes. The reason that charcoal was invented was partly because you get rid of the poisonous gases when you make charcoal, and now you just have pure carbon to burn, and all you're getting is more or less CO2 coming off it. I just want to give one last funny story. I used we to have laugh about a at minute. people we who have about a their minute plants here. talk to them. Their plants like yeah. it when, when you talk to them. You know that story. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I laughed at them. I said, well, no, they haven't got ears. But the truth is, when you talk to your plants, you're breathing out 40,000 parts per million of carbon dioxide. <laughs> you're giving them super-saturated fertilizer, and that is why they like it when you <laughs> talk to them. It's true. Brilliant. That's brilliant. <laughs> You've solved it. There you go. Dr. Patrick Moore, Fake Invisible Catastrophes and Threats of Doom. That's available Amazon and where else? It's available on Amazon.ca and Amazon.com and Amazon all over the world, and they've got a bit of a monopoly, but thankfully they're selling my book. Fantastic. Dr. Patrick Moore, always a pleasure. Thank you for uh, such uh, enlightening conversation. I appreciate it. Thank you, Richard. Anytime. A new Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett drops every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at ConspiracyUnlimitedPodcast.com. Your mind. That is all for now. Oh, and remember to share and give a five star review because we have huge egos and need love. We're like cats, we need. We need constant petting. <laughs> <laughs>